Blog Talk Radio. Calling in. I'm waiting on the line. We're on a live show waiting for your for John to call us. Uh, yeah, I should call you anytime now. Alright. Okay. Thanks so much. Talk family. We have a great show tonight. We have on the line Mr. John Franklin from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, Mr. Franklin, are you on the line? I am. Great. This is exciting. I want to thank you first for coming on on such a short notice. Uh, could you introduce the audience uh, um, and allow them to know who you are and why we invited you? Certainly. I am Director of Partnerships and International Programs at the Smithsonian's newest museum. We're currently under construction. The National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, currently under construction at the base of the Washington Monument, around the corner from the White House. Um, We are attempting in our plans and our current programs, our current exhibitions, to explain the history and culture of African Americans in the in many ways, through the building that we are constructing, uh, through exhibitions that we currently have on display and traveling the country, as well as through programs that we do. Um, we feel that it's very important for people to understand the history of African Americans in an international context. 
we are familiar with the different dates of emancipation in the United States, the official official dates. Um, we celebrated this past Monday the 150th anniversary to the day of President Lincoln's decision to free the enslaved people of Washington, D.C. A book about it is called First Freed because they are the first freed by presidential decree. Later, we have, uh, later that, at the end of that year, February, uh, January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln signs the the Emancipation Proclamation. And then uh, in some of the territories, such as Texas and uh, Florida, they learn even later um, that people are free. But at the same time that these actual decrees are occurring, people are freeing themselves uh, and seeking freedom, purchasing the freedom of their relatives, uh, running away to freedom. Uh, Some are emancipated at the death of their owners. But we feel it's an opportunity to educate the public about the history of Washington in particular, and that Washington uh, was, a, was a city, the center of democracy, that housed uh, slave trading, had and slave people uh, involved in the construction of the U.S. Capitol, of the White House, and of many of the structures that remain to this day in Washington. And it's kind of a hidden story. Uh, it's there. Those of us who've studied Washington know it. But Washington at times considers itself an international city and does not uh, always recognize its deeply southern roots. I have a very interesting map that I'd love to share with you and your listeners of Washington in 1792 when it was all plantation. If you recall, our first capitals were Philadelphia and New York, and the decision was made in 1792. 93 to build a new capital in what was southern Maryland and a tip of uh, Virginia. And this map shows the area that is transformed into Washington, D.C. as tracts of plantations with the names like Mount Pleasant, Jamaica, Port Royal, Beals Level, Mexico, Okay, Pop can I, um, before you name. continue, can I ask a question? And the, and the names of the owners. Um, there's a picture we posted on Facebook. When I say we, uh, Leslie Gibson, the Just to Freedom. A picture of an emancipation celebration, and um, the picture received over 1,000 hits and 300 shares within 48 hours. Are you familiar right. with this That's image? That's probably the, the, the celebration from 1866? This one is 1916. Okay. Okay. Um, are you familiar with this holiday? And, and why do you think so many people are fascinated with these women who are all over 100 years old, four of them, uh, at this celebration, which were once enslaved? Well, immediately following the freeing of uh, the 3,011 slaves in Washington, in subsequent years, each year, the African-American community celebrated the Emancipation Day, which was uh, April 16th. And shortly, probably after the photograph that you posted, the celebrations ended and they were revived about 10 years ago by the current city council 
and they created a uh, commission on which I serve to look at how to celebrate and educate the Washington public about this part of our history each year. Okay. So over the course of the past five years, I've done three different programs. Last night I moderated a panel discussion of four scholars who are all specialists in the history of Washington who helped us understand how this uh, emancipation uh, unfolded. Now what is the difference between Emancipation Day, Juneteenth, and Jubilee? Okay. Um, Juneteenth celebrates the day when people in Texas learned that they were free. And that has been uh, become a, a holiday that's been celebrated beyond Texas. Uh, Jubilee is celebrating freedom, uh, whether it is on any of these specific dates or just celebrating the transition from enslavement to freedom. Uh, and Emancipation Day uh, is different days in different places. In Washington, it's February it's excuse me, April sixteenth. The Emancipation Proclamation is January first. And I opened the program last night showing a map of North America, Central America, the Caribbean and South America because emancipation occurs in different years and different dates from Chile to Canada. Okay. So depending on where you are, emancipation occurs at different times. Right. Now I celebrated emancipation uh, week in Canada uh, two summers ago. Could you expound on the emancipation celebration in Canada? Yes. The British colonies, whether they were Jamaica, Canada, Bermuda, Bahamas, uh, British Guyana, all celebrated August 1st, 1833. Uh, and so throughout the Commonwealth, throughout the Caribbean, in the British-speaking areas, August 1st is Emancipation Day. Uh, the French abolished slavery twice at the time of the French Revolution in 1789. And then uh, Napoleon is married to a sugar planter, Empress Josephine in Martinique, and he re-establishes slavery uh, in 1802, and it is abolished a second time in 1848. The last place in this hemisphere to abolish slavery is Brazil in 1888, and just before that in Cuba in 1886. So, uh, so are it's, you it's are you thinking as a, a director and enslaved people at different times. Okay. So what would be great, what would be a, a, um, a ideal celebration? Do you think there should be a universal Emancipation Day where something similar to what they do in New Orleans with the Mardi Gras, where you acknowledge all of these different celebrations around the world? Um, I don't know if Mardi Gras is the, the example but I think it's important for people to understand um, that those of us who now live in the United States come from these different countries that had different history. And it's important for us to know each other's history. Uh, the Jamaicans know their history, but they may not know 
um, the history from the Spanish-speaking areas. Uh, the people from the French areas don't necessarily know what happened in Brazil. So each anniversary is an opportunity for us to educate uh, our fellow citizens. So uh, do you think there should be a universal celebration in this country, like maybe a freedom holiday? I've never considered it before, but it's, a, it's an idea we could certainly contemplate. Okay. Um, which country, and I've just been curious for years, which country uh, practiced slavery the longest? And then you mentioned when uh, they abolished it. But which one, because it's in my opinion, I'm, I have no facts to, to base it on, but it's in my opinion that America, not, you know, when America was formed in 1776, was one of the last ones to... Um, have slavery and one of the first ones to end it. You know, I like to have a comparison. Which country practiced it the longest and which one practiced slavery the shortest and who abolished it first? Well, the earliest Africans brought here, both free and enslaved, are brought by the Spanish in 1513 to Florida. Mm -hmm. Florida It it wasn't America at that point, right? Florida doesn't become part of the United States until 300 years later. Okay. But Africans were there enslaved and free for 300 years in Florida before it becomes part of the United States. Wow. So the earliest is the Spanish bringing uh, Africans to Puerto Rico, to Cuba, to various countries in South America. Uh, The last country in this hemisphere to abolish slavery is Brazil in 1888. However, slavery continues in a formal way in West Africa, uh, in Mauritania, until 1981. I was living in Senegal, a neighboring country, when the slaves in Mauritania were informed that they were free. How long was slavery in in practice in Brazil? I know you said 1888. It was abolished. Right. How long? Um, The Portuguese bring the first Africans uh, also very in the middle of the 1500s to Brazil. And West Africa. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. In West Africa, in many parts of Africa, there's a form of traditional domestic slavery that in some cases continues to this day. Uh, Young people who are given to people who may or may not be their relatives and entrusted to them, but basically they are servants to the families. They are not sent to school. Uh, when I lived in Senegal, in, in hindsight, I can realize that there were young women who cooked and cleaned in the household where I had lunch every day who were originally from another country, Mali, neighboring country. They were Bambara women who were uh, technically slaves to the family where I was eating. And uh, these girls were not paid. They uh, didn't get to go to school as the other children in the household. And they cooked and cleaned as long as the family needed them. And I was talking with an American friend of mine the other day, and when the families no longer need them, they're just dismissed. And they don't have any savings. They haven't accumulated any money. They haven't benefited from education. 
So slavery exists in many forms, not just sexual exploitation, but in exploitation of young people in many parts of the world. Can you explain and, uh, or distinguish between, make a distinct distinction between chattel slavery, indentureship, and apprenticeship? Okay. Um, chattel slavery, as practiced in the United States, you are born into slavery and you you become you become a slave for many generations. Um, indentured indenture was a practice in the United States and elsewhere where you had a contract for a certain number of finite years after which you were free. You were not enslaved or a servant in perpetuity. Um, in some of our northern United States states, such as New York I have and to interrupt. New Jersey. You just dropped a, a very uh, big word. Could you go back to that word and explain in perpetuity? I have a Forever. <laughs> well, what do you Forever. mean by that? If, okay. Um, if your mother and or father were a slave and had you as a child, you would be a slave until you die forever, and your children would be slaves. There was no ending point of your being a slave. And when did this With practice indenture. become? In, uh, 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 when was this practice established? It was established by law in the United States. Uh, certainly before the American Revolution. Uh, slavery was well established in many parts of the United States before the country was created, and it was viewed as normal. Uh, it was part of the law that existed under British law. French had laws around slavery. Spain had laws around slavery. Um, and it was viewed as normal. When you had apprenticeship, when you had indenture, you might be brought over on a Hello? Okay, he dropped out. Uh, we'll, we're waiting for Mr. John Franklin to call back. He should be calling us back any minute. We were talking about an image of four women that are over 400 years old uh, celebrating Emancipation Day in Washington, D.C. And we just wanted to learn more about these different celebrations that we've uh, lost in our culture. And um, he's explaining now about indentureship, chattel slavery, and apprenticeship. When he calls back, uh, I'd like to ask Mr. John Franklin, uh, from the Smithsonian Museum about Anthony Johnson, an indentured servant um, from the 1600s, uh, early 1700s, who became very wealthy in Virginia. And uh, this all happened once the country had changed from indentureship to uh, chattel slavery. And he's an expert, so I am very eager to hear his answer. So I hope he will be calling us back. Until then, I'm going to put on some music, so be patient with us. 
and I apologize for the technical difficulties. Hello, Mr. Franklin, you're back? Yes, I'm back. I said hello and I have lost you. Yes, and it was just getting so interesting. I was like, Mr. Franklin? <laughs> but anyway, we well, left off I said off hello back. and I lost you. So yes, I well, back. I'm glad you called back. You were just explaining apprenticeship. You explained indentureship and cattle slavery. You were moving on to indent- uh, apprenticeship. Yes, and uh, I... I explain that apprenticeship is usually to learn a skill of some kind. You learn to be a silversmith, you learn to be a carpenter, um, you learn to be a midwife, you learn to be a seamstress, you learn to be a chef. And uh, so you, you're given by a relative usually, this has nothing to do with slavery necessarily, people apprentice now uh, to a person until you master that skill uh, and their levels of being... Uh, you know, newly skilled, and then you eventually become a, a master craftsperson in whatever the skill is. Well, I asked um, that question because when I read ben- Benjamin Franklin's uh, biography, I was mm-hmm. surprised that he was, you know, indentured to his brother at like a printing press, and he escaped. And, right. And right. I, I, I was just amazed that they were practicing, you know, that white people were practicing something similar to slavery amongst their own relatives. And he literally right. escaped and was afraid on a boat to be captured and identified as a escapee. Well, not everyone had the opportunity to go to college or or school. And so there were other ways that people learned how uh learned a trade and was often by apprenticeship. 
what I think you missed in what I was continuing to discuss okay. was that when slavery was officially ended in New York and New Jersey, for example, uh, if you were a young person, let's say you were 12 or 13, uh, when when freedom was announced uh, in 1803, there was a period of apprenticeship for formerly enslaved young men and women until they were a certain age, or, uh, for example, until you're 21 or until you're 30, in which you continue a status between being a slave and being free until you've satisfied whatever that time limit is. And so that's a second use of the term apprenticeship specifically related to slavery. Benjamin Franklin, of course, was not of African descent, and his apprenticeship was uh, for the skill that he was being trained in. And uh, I'm sure, as you said, he escaped. There are people, other people who escaped. But even today, people who want to become chefs, for example, go and apprentice with a master chef until they attain those skills. Okay. Now, I had a question about a documentary I viewed several years ago, and I just uploaded it onto my YouTube channel recently, about Anthony Johnson out of Virginia. Are you familiar with Mr. Johnson's story? I'm not. Okay. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit, and we'll let the audience do the research. He was um, a black indentured servant, and he um, worked out his uh, servitude, and he became a very, very wealthy landowner. And in this documentary, it explains how America, you know, how the colonies went from a labor system of um, indentureship to chattel slavery. And it talked about the land rights and, you know, things of that nature. But uh, we'll continue with the different um, celebrations. Uh, so you had a meeting recently, and you had a, a slideshow you were talking about. Could you tell us more about those images that you uh, presented last night? Yes, the images um, that some of my panelists brought were of the celebration in Washington D.C. in 1866. That's the that's the painting. I'm that's the etching that I'm familiar with okay. uh, of people um, in in fancy dress uh, celebrating their freedom from you know four years previous to that particular celebration. It's, for, it's an illustration from a, a newspaper at the time called Harper's Weekly. Um, they also showed photographs of black troops from the Civil War. This is during, uh, the emancipation takes place during the Civil War. And uh, an interesting part of, I learned yesterday, part of Mr. Lincoln's document was to encourage Africans, if they wanted to leave the United States as free people, uh, there was something called a colonization movement recommending that people either go to the Caribbean as free people, or they go to Liberia, which was a created uh, as a place to receive formerly enslaved people. Uh, and they got on ships and went to Liberia. People from Canada had the opportunity, if they had served the British uh, during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, to go to Sierra Leone, also in West Africa, as free people uh, from Canada. And uh, what so was the it's average, very interesting. 
I'm sorry, but what was the average uh, amount of time or generations that an uh, African-American would have been enslaved at that time? And I'm asking that because I'm thinking if I knew what part of Africa I came from, I would want to go back home. Why, you know, we settled somewhere that may do the same thing to me, enslave me, just like the Maris did, you know. Did any of these, you know... Did anyone know who was the of people? Well, I read an interesting novel. I just finished it last month called The Book of Negroes, and it's by a black Canadian author. And it's a story of a woman. It's a beautifully written story uh, of a woman who is captured in the 1700s in her village in Guinea in West Africa and walks for many weeks alongside other people who've been captured to the coast of where she's eventually put on a ship and she ends up, she survives the, the crossing and ends up in South Carolina. She then is taken to New York City and is in New York City when the Revolutionary War breaks out, 1770. Um, and then she goes to Canada and from Canada, she actually makes it all the way back to Africa and tries to find her village and is unsuccessful. So it's a book called The Book of Negroes. It's a very, very powerfully written book. And it reminds me of the story of Amistad, you know. Yes. And I'll let you explain the story. Well, the Amistad is the story of a ship that was a Cuban ship um, and people come beyond take over the ship and try to become free. Um, they're unsuccessful. They uh, eventually are taken to Connecticut. And uh, in Connecticut, they learn how to read and write English and uh, eventually make their way back to Sierra Leone. It's a long but very interesting story. And was that common, you know, when if an African was... Oh, no, it was not at all common. So when people fought, but there were there were revolts on the ships. There's some very interesting books about the the actual time on the slave ship. One is one book is called The Slave Ship by a man named Redeker, and it looks at the three different parts of the of the ship trade of the ship movement from Europe to Africa. The ship comes with very few people on it, but many goods that will be traded for Africa. Um, textiles, weapons, ammunition, wine, liquor, uh, iron. Um, and those goods then are brought to these West African coastal towns and with local chiefs or kings. They trade those goods for Africans. And then the Africans... Uh, are placed on these ships, which are now empty of the trade goods. And in this phase, which we know as the Middle Passage, it's a floating prison of these men and women, uh, restrained children on the ship as well, children born on the ship, pregnant women on the ship. And when the ship comes to its port in the Americas, whether it's Brazil or Jamaica or New York or Washington or... Um, other places in Central and South America, the people who have survived the crossing 
uh, are then sold to new owners. Uh, and then when the ships are empty of the Africans that they've brought over and they've collected money, uh, the the ship then is loaded with goods from the Americas. If it's from South Amer- South America, it might be silver or gold. It might be timber. Uh, from our region in the United States, it might have been cotton or molasses from sugar or rum. And then those goods are shipped to Europe. Uh, we think of really the slave trade as the first globalization. I know we talk a lot about globalization now, but you have a minimum of 12.5 million people taken from Africa, brought to the Americas between 1501 and 1867. What, and role, what role did the gold mine, or the, uh, the 40, 1849 gold rush, uh, play in the, um, the emancipation of Africans? None, none to my knowledge. Um, by the time there are there are African Americans who go to California as other Americans do to uh, be part of the gold rush to hopefully become rich finding gold in California. We're actually doing an exhibition on a family that came to California in search of gold. An African American family came in search of gold. They were free people. Uh, this is 1840. But uh, they were free African Americans in California at that time. But we were the hottest commodity on on the market at that time during the slave trade, of course. Is right. Any more but, valuable um, than Africans? Well, they're valuable because they weren't being paid for their employment, so that the products that they helped create, be it sugar or tobacco the prices weren't as high as if they had to pay for that labor. Um, And there are many investors in Europe, both in the trade in European goods and investments in the ships for people who wanted to become wealthy when these ships come back with money from trading the slaves as well as goods to sell in Europe. So how did the Revolutionary War, the Industrial, sorry, Industrial Revolution, affect the slave trade combined with the gold rush. Right. Well, I don't think the gold rush is part of it. The um, industrialization uh, is taking various products and making them easier to produce with um, machines, such as cotton, for example. Cotton is grown in the south of the United States and in other places. And then it is taken to factories in New England that process the raw cotton into thread and then into fabric that is sold in the United States as well as exported abroad. So because the labor was so cheap, because you're not paying these slaves to either grow the cotton or grow the rice or grow the sugar, then the people who own the slaves sell the products of the slaves at a lower price than if they had to pay them salary. So that's where the profit margin comes in. So economically speaking, the gold rush and gold being a new hottest commodity uh, and and an industrial revolution really had no bearing on slowing down 
the slave trade and slavery institution itself? Not to my knowledge. We think of the gold rush as California. There are other times when gold is exported out of America. And indeed, when Christopher Columbus came here and other explorers in the 1400s and 1500s, they were looking for gold and got gold from the Indians and took it back to Europe. So the gold rush starts in 1492, and that's prior to slavery, because people wanted gold. If you ever have the opportunity to visit the National Museum of the American Indian here at the Smithsonian in Washington, you see that at the moment of 1492 of the so-called discovery, American Indians in Central, North, and South America knew gold, knew how to get gold, and had many objects made out of gold that the Europeans wanted, took, melted down, and made into other gold objects in Europe. So gold is a long-term history. And indeed, there are Africans who are brought to Brazil. Close to 6 million Africans are brought to Brazil alone during the slave trade, many of whom have skills in mining because there were mines in Africa, there was gold in Africa, and there were Africans brought to create and work in the mines, whether they were silver mines uh, or gold mines in different parts of South America. And I'm so, glad you mentioned the skills. That that was one of the reasons um, they kidnapped Africans, based on not just hard labor and physical labor, but because of the skills. And you talked about apprenticeship well, and mentorship. Cotton, cotton, for example. Cotton, for example, is a is a is a crop in West Africa that's been grown for thousands of years. People know how to grow it, spin it, weave it, dye it, and make clothing out of it. Um, cotton is not a European product, and so cotton was produced in Africa, taken across the Sahara Desert into Europe in the medieval ages, and then cotton is produced in the American South, for example, and then shipped to Europe to make European clothes. But the skill and knowledge of how to work with cotton, how to grow it, how to spin it, how to weave it, how to dye it, is an African skill. Similarly, while rice does grow in Asia, the first rice brought to the Americas, whether it's to Haiti or South America or Virginia or Louisiana, are Africans who have been growing rice in West Africa. The French bring... Bring, French bring people to Louisiana in the 1720s who know how to grow rice, who know how to plant it, irrigate it, harvest it, cure it, and cook it. We all have heard of gumbo, whether we live in Louisiana or not. Campbell Soup makes gumbo, but gumbo is actually the French word for okra, and it's a West African dish served with rice that the West Africans brought over. What so many of the Euro- over? Many what? of the European planters were actually eating African food. Right. I'm sorry, can, you were asking. Can, what can other? you list some more foods? I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I know okra's one. And what about the yam or the sweet potato that you hear about? Uh, well, they exist. They're, two, they're different forms of yam and sweet potatoes, some of which are in West Africa and some of which are here. Okay. It's interesting, you know, when... When Columbus and other Europeans came here, their their fruits and vegetables they discovered here that did not exist in Asia 
or in Europe or in Africa. Hot peppers are from the Americas. Watermelon is from West Africa. Black-eyed peas are from West Africa. Um, yep. And uh, and so when people began traveling, they took hot pepper back to West Africa. They brought mangoes and oranges and other fruits from Asia to Africa and to South America. So um, there's a very interesting set of books about the exchange of foods that occur in the late 1500s. Uh, potatoes are from South America. You think of the Irish potato, but potatoes were originally from South Africa, South America, from Peru, from Bolivia, and they're exported to Europe, and they start to grow them in Europe. Well, then why, um, do we, why are we taught that, you know, about Thanksgiving uh, is a time where the Native Americans exchange food with the, the pilgrims and yeah. Right. So well, their crops. Right. The crops that are like from here. Right. That the that the Europeans needed help learning how to grow, so that they would survive these harsh winters. Right. And the corn was a product from here. Um, tobacco is a product from here. As I said, hot peppers and potatoes are proper are are products from the Americas. Uh, and while the Atlantic Ocean has the same fish on both sides, uh, the birds here, turkey, turkeys are from here. So uh, they've now been exported to other parts of the world, but these pilgrims are discovering turkeys. I've seen some wild up in Massachusetts. Um, and so there's this you know, tradition of Thanksgiving, but now it's been transformed into all the different foods that different communities have brought after, well after the... Indians and British are celebrating the first Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, African American families have their own twist to it. Asian families have dishes that are not part of the European, African, or North American uh, food repertoire. Wonderful. Uh, and I know that you only promised us fifteen minutes, and we went way <laughs> past fifteen minutes. But I had to. I have to ask you about Christmas Attic. And Benjamin Banneker, and then we can close. Uh, Christmas okay. Attic, you know, we're, you know, this summer we'll be celebrating the 4th of July. And um, I'd like to know more about, um, you know, your sentiments about Christmas Attic and why we as African Americans to celebrate um, 4th of July or merge it with Emancipation Day, if you think that's possible. And Benjamin Banneker, you started off the show by talking about Washington, D.C., and how the plans were laid out and was originally different plantations. Um, I was watching a show about the different shapes, how the states got its shapes, and I was so disheartened when they showed um, the rock that Christmas Addis used when he was um, surveying Washington, laying it out, Washington, D.C. That's dramatic. Right? What did you say? Yeah. Okay. And it was locked up. Literally locked up in a cage. Ninety seconds. And and I was just upset. I was like, why aren't we celebrating Christmas addicts more and Benjamin Franklin? I mean Benjamin Banneker. So if you could start off with Benjamin Banneker. Okay. Um, Benjamin Banneker actually grew up um, in Maryland, and uh, he's one of our first 
scientists, first American scientists, say nothing of first black scientists. And um, there, sixty if you, if you seconds. Come in Ellicott City, there, there in in Baltimore County, there is a park where Benjamin Banneker grew up, and uh, he learned how to become a surveyor and how to assess land uh, with the Mr. Ellicott from Ellicott City's name. And the two of them surveyed the area um, that already had plantations in it. I'm looking at the map right in front of me, actually. Um, and they decided how to lay out the streets of Washington. Um, there is very near my office a Benjamin Banneker um, plaque talking about his work in terms of surveying Washington and working with Pierre L'Enfant, uh, who admired the boulevards and streets of Paris and designed Washington uh, similar to the streets of Paris. Now, Christmas Attucks is, of course, someone we hear about as children, the first person to die in the American Revolution. And his significance is that uh, we have an exhibition at the Museum of American History called The Price of Freedom. And uh, people of African descent have fought in every war that has occurred in the United States. And uh, coming all the way back to colonization and the story of D.C. emancipation, many people were opposed to leaving the United States after they were free, even if they were given money to go to the Caribbean or go to Africa, because they said, we have worked and died to be free in this country. Now that we're free and we've paid already in blood, uh, we've fought in previous wars. We're American citizens, just like anyone else who's here. We should not have to leave now that we're free. Uh, there were certain communities, certain parts of the community that were afraid that uh, free blacks would have no control. Well, they're the same laws that control free people of all kinds. So uh, if you break the law, you'll be... You know, and you'd be in violation of the law, and you'll serve time or fine or whatever is appropriate. Um, but people felt that once they had fought in the War of 1812, or fought in the Revolutionary War, or fought in the Civil War for freedom, they should not be forced to leave the country uh, because some people did not want them to remain here. So, so as African Americans. Should we celebrate the 4th of July and Emancipation Day and Jubilee and Juneteenth all together on that one day? Or uh, I don't know if we need to celebrate them together. They're at different times. Um, and but are they all that, of the same uh, spirit? Some are and some are not. Now, there's a very important speech that I would encourage your listeners to read to find Frederick Douglass. Um, wrote a speech, an oration, as it was called, What is the Fourth of July to the American Slave? Because it was celebrating freedom from Britain and the British crown, but well, as long as people were still enslaved in a society that uh, respected democracy, he felt there was some hypocrisy 
in African Americans celebrating the 4th of July. Um, but those days have passed. But there's a wonderful oration, and I would encourage all of your readers to look up, look up or try to find uh, Frederick Douglass's speech about the 4th of July, which he gave before emancipation. Now, on that note, could you tell us uh, if and when Washington, D.C. is going to have a celebration, and tell us more about your museum and the date that it will be open and how to get in contact sure. with you and the museum. Certainly. About 10 years ago, the city of Washington began celebrating Emancipation Day again, and people asked me to be part of planning that. And there's a, an annual parade, which was Monday. There are fireworks. And then there are different conferences and programs for people of all ages, and that's why we had the discussion last night. I had another discussion last week, and there were programs in different parts of the city uh, over the weekend and will be all this week. Um, our museum was the dream of Civil War black veterans to create first a monument and then a museum in Washington to tell of the contributions of African Americans in creating the society. Uh, that's over 150 years ago. And now uh, we are in the process of building a building um, that was brought into law. It was created by the second President Bush. He appointed a commission. The commission came up with recommendations that this new museum should be built. It should be built as part of the Smithsonian. It is the 19th Museum of the Smithsonian, and it's being built at the base of the Washington Monument, facing the White House. President Obama and Mrs. Obama came for our groundbreaking ceremonies on February 22nd of this year, and the leadership of the Smithsonian, the director of our museum, Lonnie Bunch, uh, members of our board, who include uh, Laura Bush, the former First Lady, and a number of business people. It's chaired by Dick Parsons from Time Warner and um, the publisher of Ebony Jet. Um, and uh, all of them were present. We have the challenge of raising $500 million, $250 million from Congress, and $250 million for the private sector and from individuals. Um, to build the building, and then we're in the process of designing exhibitions on the history and culture of African Americans from Africa through getting here on the middle, in the Middle Passage, through the periods of slavery and freedom, the fight, for fight against segregation, and the period following Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, right up to the inauguration of President Obama. We're looking at developing exhibitions on music, on theater and other cultural expression, on uh, blacks in sports and in the military. We're looking at different communities of African, uh, African-American communities across the country at different time periods in an exhibition called um, The Power of Place. We're looking at the creation of African-American organizations and institutions uh, and the creation of uh, black scientists and inventors and doctors in an exhibition called Making a Way Out of No Way. And um, we have all of that in the works while we're building. So we're developing exhibitions. 
We have a gallery in the Museum of American History, uh, and our current exhibition there is called Slavery and Jefferson's Monticello. It is a gallery of 3,000 square feet that we've done in partnership with Monticello, where Mr. Jefferson lived. And we have a mixture of artifacts that the museum has acquired through purchase and through gifts. Um, objects from the Museum of American History where the exhibition is housed and artifacts and documents from Monticello, Mr. Jefferson's home. And that exhibition will be up until October 16th. But 14th, excuse me. We have an exhibition that comes after that called Marching to Freedom, which will mark uh, the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, as well as the March of Washington, which took place 50 years ago in uh, 2013. So you can reach us through our website, N for National, M for Museum, AA for African American, HC for History and Culture, NMAAHC.SI.EDU. And that's the Smithsonian website. If you can just look up Smithsonian, you can also look National Museum of African American History and Culture. You can become a member of the organization for as little as uh, $25. We're hoping to have 100,000 members by the time we open. I heard today we're at 28,000 and something. Um, we are looking for the artifacts that help us tell the history and culture of African Americans. And these objects are not just in African American hands, uh, because African American culture and history is important to all Americans and we're building a museum for all Americans and visitors. We have visitors at the Smithsonian from around the world. So we hope to complete construction in 2014 and then take a year to populate the museum with the exhibition, the cafeteria, the library, the orientation theater, and everything that you want to come and see in late 2015. For free, as all the Smithsonian museums are, your tax dollars partially help to support that, but we have to raise money for public programs, for exhibitions, and to acquire artifacts. So late 2015, we're saying November 2015, you come on down to Washington for the National Museum of African American History and Culture opening. We are celebrating our groundbreaking a second time this year, June 27th, with a concert uh, uh, at the, on the National Mall, June 27th. I believe we start about 6 p.m. So if you're in the area, please plan on joining us. And in the interim, you can come to the National Museum of American History and go to the Greensboro sit-in lunch counter on the second floor. And right next to the lunch counter is the National Museum of African American History and Culture Gallery, where, as I said earlier, we have the exhibition Jefferson and Slavery and Jefferson's Monticello, The Paradox of Liberty. Excellent. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a great deal. You uh, gave us a list of books to read, um, and you invited us to a concert, and we would like to have you on again around a week or two before your June concert. Do you think we can possibly uh, book you again? I'd love to, and there'll be more to tell, more to share with you at that time. All right. Thank you, Mr. Franklin, and have a great night. You too. Right. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. <laughs>
for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.